When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, Jared Halverson here, back for some more scripture study on Unshaken. If you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, amazing musical, you probably remember Tevye going around quoting the good book, uh, saying, as the good book says, and then saying something that the good book doesn't say at all. You know, as the good book says, if you spit in the air, it lands in your face. It, that's a true principle, but the good book never said it. And to me, it's always interesting to hear people think they're quoting scripture when they're just a bit off or in Tevye's case, way off. Oh, well. But for today, there is a statement that we sometimes think is scriptural. We often quote that says, where much is given, much is expected. Now, we're so close. We'll see that today. Today, we're covering section 81 to 83. And in section 82, we see the what, what people are thinking they're quoting. But it doesn't say where much is given, much is expected. It's a stronger word. Where much is given, much is required. And I'm hoping that, that as we wrap our minds around that concept, a requirement there, God has given us so much and he requires, I mean, in the context of, of uh, the law of consecration and stewardship, you've been given a stewardship and where much is given, much is required of you to, to contribute back. We'll, we'll see more of that taught explicitly in, in section 82. But not just in that revelation. In 81 and in 83, I want you to keep that phrase, that, that statement in the back of your mind. Because we will see other things given in those two revelations. And, and I think it's up to us to consider what is it that God requires of us, having given us that blessing in the first place. Now, to, to set the stage for section 81, I want to take us back, well, almost two decades now, to the passing of Elder Neil A. Maxwell. Now, even at his funeral, President Hinckley said, we've never had an apostle quite like him, and we may never have another one like him again. He had such a way with words, his, his eloquence. We, we laugh in our family because my wife probably knows Elder Maxwell's uh, teachings better than Elder Maxwell did. Uh, she absolutely loved everything that came out of his mouth. Uh, I, I really love Sister Maxwell because I think uh, she's the one that kept my wife from holding out hope and just waiting to perhaps be, be sealed to Elder Maxwell in the next life. It was like, no, he's already taken. You'll have to settle for somebody like me. I mean, we named our, our, our oldest son. His middle name is Maxwell. Elder Maxwell is just, oh, he has, he has spoken truth to, to our souls in incredible ways. Well, I happened to be in downtown Salt Lake City on Temple Square when, when the news spread that Elder Maxwell had passed away. And I was still kind of coming to terms with the shock of that. And a, a camera crew came and, and they asked me if I had been aware of Elder Maxwell's passing. And I said, yes. And they said, can we interview you? And just to get your thoughts on the passing of an apostle. This is going to be for the six o'clock news or whatever it was. And I said, okay, I'd be happy to do that. And I remember they, they asked me questions about Elder Maxwell. And, and I was able to share with them just how much he meant to me as a servant of the Lord. 
Again, my son's middle name, okay? He's, Elder Maxwell's a fixture in our family. Uh, but then at the end of this, I don't know, very brief little interview, I said, but the kingdom rolls on. And now there's a vacancy in the Quorum of the Twelve that the Lord will fill. And as much as we'll miss Elder Maxwell, we are eager to learn the Lord's will and see who, whom the Lord will call to fill that position. And we wrapped up the interview and, and off, off I went. But it was interesting. I thought to myself, oh, wait a minute. I have no power in the editing process. Post-production is out of my hands. And what if they get rid of all, I mean, the bulk of the, the, this little interview about how much Elder Maxwell meant to me and only include the end? This almost, it wasn't flippant when I said it, but if you cut it off from the rest, it's almost like, oh, well, Elder Maxwell's gone, but the kingdom rolls on and, and someone else will fill it and we're ready to move forward. And I just thought, ah, uh, if you're only going to use that, please don't use anything. And they must have either heard my prayer or realized that I, that I don't have a face for the five o'clock news and they didn't include any of it at all, which I was totally fine with. But I want you to think about that idea of, of vacancies being filled and not in any kind of unfeeling or flippant way not uh, underestimating the power of this, but it is incredible that the kingdom really does move forward without missing a beat, honestly. In fact, right after President Ezra Taft Benson passed away and President Howard W. Hunter was called to, to take his place, uh, that was when Elder Jeffrey R. Holland was called to fill the vacancy in the Quorum of the Twelve. And he gave an incredible talk to religious educators in which he talked about the experience of, of receiving his calling and of watching President Hunter receive his. He talked a bit about this idea of succession in the presidency. And he said this, Can you imagine what would happen in such circumstances at AT&T or General Motors? The infighting would be absolutely lethal. The corporate bloodletting incalculable. The confusion suffocating. All the while watching the organization spiral downward, out of control, probably toward destruction. But in the church, not a whimper. Not a whisper. Not a sixty-fourth of a second without keys and authority and prophetic leadership. I was just struck with the way Elder Holland described that. Not a 64th of a second. The caravan really does move on. And positions, as, as ably as they were filled to begin with, the Lord, it's amazing that he always seems to have able and eager servants waiting in the wings. Not vying for position, but willing to offer themselves upon the altar to fill whatever position the Lord calls them to. And you get a bit of a sense of that when you study section 81. You see, in, in section 81, you see a step toward the establishment of the first presidency. We're going to see an additional counselor to Joseph Smith called here. Now, it's not technically the first presidency. That's going to come sometime later. It's just still line upon line, okay? Uh, there's no quorum of the 12 yet, so there's no quorum of the first presidency yet. Joseph Smith actually fairly recently had been sustained as president of the high priesthood. If you remember back to section 21, well, that April 6th, 1830 organization date of the church, Joseph is sustained as prophet, seer, translator, apostle, and elder. But there's no sense of president of the church yet. Well, by the time you get to section 81, he has been ordained as president of the high priesthood. And since the high priesthood uh, administers all the functions of the church, in, in essence, that's president of the church as a formal position. Uh, Sidney Rigdon has been serving as a counselor of his, and here another counselor will be called. But like I said, it's not for quite some time. We'll get more of it when we get to section 90 in a couple of weeks, uh, where you have an official quorum of the first presidency of the church.
And what's interesting in section 81, if you look at the section heading, the calling originally went to a man by the name of Jesse Goss. I've heard Goss, I've heard Gauss, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. But Brother Jesse, in fact, when, when, when this revelation was first given, it was addressed simply to God's servant, Jesse, as this good man was called into the presidency of the high priesthood as a counselor to the prophet Joseph Smith. Well, unfortunately for him and for the church to understand what, what might have been, who knows, within a year, Jesse Goss has left the church and been excommunicated. Talk about a short-lived calling. The way Wilfred Woodruff said it is that, that Jesse Goss just walked himself out of the history of the church. And he definitely walked himself out of section 81. You see, like I said, when the revelation was first given, it was addressed to him. But this is an important difference. We've seen a lot of revelations addressed to specific individuals. Last week when we saw Eden Smith and Stephen Burnett uh, called on missions, that was for them. But we've also seen, for example, at the end of section 25, when Emma gets her revelation, the Lord says, what I say unto one, I say unto all, or, or this, these are my words unto all. So to realize that there's application and relevance here. And I think the point that needs to be made is that there are some revelations that are meant for a specific person that can then be expanded and applied to other people. But in section 81, you get something slightly different. Because yes, it was a revelation originally addressed to a specific person, but in reality, it was being addressed to a specific position, namely a counselor in the presidency of the high priesthood, which can then be expanded to anyone serving as a counselor in any kind of presidency. If you're ever called as a bishop, there's a lot you can study in the scriptures about your calling. If you're called to be an apostle, good luck to you. Uh, but there's a ton in scripture that will help you understand your calling. But if you're called to be a counselor in a primary presidency or release study presidency, uh, in a priesthood quorum, in a bishopric or stake presidency, what do I do? Is there much scripture about the position of counselor? And section 81 is a beautiful place to begin studying. And I think the fact is dramatized when, when President Gauss, if we want to call him that, leaves the church and therefore the, the presidency of the high priesthood and is replaced by a man named Frederick G. Williams. Now, Frederick G. Williams was wonderful. He had actually joined the church as Oliver Cowdery and Parley P. Pratt and others were on that Lamanite mission early on. He's from the, he's living in the Kirtland area. And so not just Sidney Rigdon joining the church, but Frederick G. Williams. And in fact, Brother Williams, as soon as he joins the church, he joins that Lamanite set of, that set of Lamanite missionaries and heads down to Missouri with them. I mean, talk about, I mean, ready to go at the drop of a hat. I just joined the church. I hope they call me on a mission. I don't even have to grow a foot or two. I'm ready to go right now. And so he goes. Uh, a faithful brother ready to serve wherever he is called. And you, you get a sense of that here. As soon as Jesse Gauss is, is removed, there's a vacancy. And, and Frederick G. Williams is, is very able to fill it. And not just to fill the position, but to fill the revelation intended for the position. I've sometimes heard bishops and stake presidents be very careful with the way they refer to their office. Namely, they don't call it their. They'll say, well, why don't we meet in the bishop's office? And it sounds kind of redundant, like, why don't you just say, well, just come, come see me in my office. And the point that they're trying to make is, it's not mine. It doesn't belong to me as an individual. It belongs to the bishop, whoever that bishop might be. I think in a way, it's an admission of what we've seen repeatedly in the Doctrine and Covenants, that none of us are irreplaceable. And while we might walk ourselves out of the history of the church, the history of the church moves on. The caravan keeps on rolling. 
And so the things, the promises and responsibilities, the words intended for Jesse Gauss are now given instead to Frederick G. Williams. It's all coming from that same Father in Heaven that commands and then revokes and adjusts on the fly based on our use or misuse of agency. And that's exactly what's happening here. And so the Lord says to him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, my servant, oop, not Jesse anymore, cross that out, and insert in its place Frederick G. Williams. Listen to the voice of him who speaketh, to the word of the Lord your God, and hearken to the calling wherewith you are called, even to be a high priest in my church, and a counselor unto my servant, Joseph Smith, Jr. There we see the listen that so many revelations begin with, a hearken or hear. You see a hearken to the calling wherewith you've been called. And so you're going to get a feeling of, well, what does this calling entail? President Irene, in fact, has counseled priesthood leaders that any time that you extend a calling to someone, make sure they understand what the calling entails. What are they getting themselves into? And so hearken to the calling wherewith you've been called. I'm going to talk to you about this calling in this revelation. Part of it will include being a high priest in my church. Anytime you're called into a presiding role in a bishopric, for example, you are, you are called to be a high priest along with it. No longer an elder, now a high priest. And more specifically, to be a counselor unto my servant, Joseph Smith Jr. Now notice how specific that is also. Not just a counselor in the, the presiding high priesthood, not just a counselor to the church, namely a counselor to, unto my servant, Joseph Smith Jr. And there's a difference there. You see, counselors are called to counsel their presiding authority. And when that presiding authority is released, their, quote unquote, counselors are released right along with them. We see that each time a president of the church passes away. The First Presidency as a whole is dissolved. Those counselors return to their places of seniority within the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and the, the senior apostle becomes the next president of the church. And it's up to him to seek the Lord's counsel to decide whom his counselors should be. And the church moves forward. Not a 64th of a second without priesthood keys, right? Well, in verse 2, speaking of those keys, unto whom, so he's still referring to Joseph Smith, unto whom I have given the keys of the kingdom, which belong always unto the presidency of the high priesthood. You see, there's a difference between priesthood authority and priesthood power. Authority is all about ordination. Power is all about personal righteousness. But there's also a difference between priesthood authority and priesthood keys. And the keys are the right to preside. It's not just that you have the authority of the priesthood, but you are directing its work. You're giving permission to other authorized priesthood holders to function within your jurisdiction, within the sphere of your stewardship. And so a deacon's quorum president has keys to direct the work within his quorum. Same with a teacher's quorum president, or an elder's quorum president, or a bishop, which is the priest quorum president, the president of the Aaronic priesthood in the ward. The president of the stake is the president of the, of the high priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood within the stake. Those all have keys. And here... Who possesses the keys of the kingdom? The presidency of the high priesthood does. Which, as I said, in a short amount of time, will be formally recognized as the first presidency of the church. I mean, this takes us back to, to Matthew 16, when, when Peter bears this powerful testimony of Jesus Christ, and Jesus says to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. And he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You'll be in charge. I am delegating to you my authority. 
and not just the authority to function in my name, that's kind of general priesthood, but the authority to direct the work of the priesthood throughout the kingdom of God. Those are the keys of the kingdom. Since nobody really knows what Peter, James, and John and the other apostles looked like in life, uh, throughout early Christian history, whenever there was a bunch of paintings or, or statues uh, carved of the Quorum of the Twelve, how could you spot Peter? Well, he was typically depicted holding keys, a literal set in, in that case, for art's sake, a symbolic set as far as, as the keys of the kingdom are concerned. They belong to the presidency of the high priesthood. In verse 3, therefore, verily I acknowledge him and will bless him and also thee. So he blesses the prophet, the presiding authority, and his counselors right along with him. But notice the rest of the verse. Inasmuch as thou art faithful in counsel, in the office which I have appointed unto you, in prayer always, vocally, and in thy heart, in public and in private, also in thy ministry, in proclaiming the gospel in the land of the living and among thy brethren, you see, this wasn't just instruction for Jesse Gauss. I mean, other individuals have received individualized instruction. I mean, this is kind of the, the, the tailoring of tenets that we talked about before, the personalization of principles. When you are crowned with commandments, not a few. I mean, at the very beginning of the year, we met uh, Jesse Knight Sr., who was told, you need to take up your cross, which is, which is prayer. You've got to muster the courage to pray in public and in private. Well, similar here, but that's not just counsel for Jesse Gauss. It's counsel for a counselor. And now that it, that's you, Frederick G. Williams, the, the counsel applies equally. His calling will require all that you can give. I mean, it required more than what the presiding authority can give by himself or by herself. He or she needs counselors. And if they needed your help, well, believe me, you'll all need heaven's help. So pray for it. Pray always. Do it vocally as well as in your heart. Do it in public as well as in private. Now, if we're speaking specifically of the First Presidency, soon to be, I'm amazed that so much of their calling happens behind the scenes. Yes, they do a lot of praying and a lot of proclaiming the gospel. I mean, that is their ministry, right? And so much of that is public. They are a visible face of the church wherever they go. But in order, and that's authority, but in order to have power, that revolves around what they do behind the scenes when they're not standing at a pulpit or podium, when there's no cameras clicking or film rolling, where in the privacy of their own private lives, they're living the gospel of Jesus Christ, trying to open themselves to receive the power of their position so that as soon as they are in the public eye, the power they have received in private can come through their public ministry. And who is that ministry to? Proclaiming the gospel in the land of the living? That's an interesting one, since they know so little about work for the dead. That's still years away. But I wonder if the Lord is dropping hints. Uh, what you're doing now, at least, you counselors in, in the presidency of the high priesthood, is proclaiming the gospel in the land of the living. There's a lot going on among the land of the dead that you're not aware of yet. But we'll get there. You're little children. I will lead you along, remember? But also here, as it says at the end, and among thy brethren. So rather than thinking living dead, we'll get to that later, but think live out there, the land of the living, as opposed to among your brethren right here. So we're seeing two different divides. There's the, the public-private divide, but there's also the non-member-member member divide. 
and as presidency of the high priesthood with the keys of the kingdom, the kingdom of God in all the earth, you're their prophet too. I mean, it may be easier, actually, I don't even know if that's the case. It may be easier to speak among thy brethren, those who, who sustain you as, as the presidency of the high priesthood. But holding the keys of the kingdom in all the earth, you're responsible for anyone there in the land of the living. The bishop is not just responsible for the three or four hundred people that are on his membership records. He's responsible for every human being that lives within his geographic ward boundaries. It's the land of the living that he's responsible for. President Nelson is not just responsible for 17 million members of the church. That might be the easy part. He's responsible for seven plus billion people on the planet. And it's amazing to see him meeting with the Pope, meeting with world leaders, meeting with recently the leaders of the NAACP. Why? Because he wants to help everyone in the land of the living. That's part of his responsibilities. No wonder he needs counselors who are willing to lift where they stand uh, right alongside him. It, it, actually, hold on to that thought. It came from President Uchtdorf originally, that lift where you stand. You get a sense of that here in verse 3 when it says two things, to be faithful in counsel, and then the next phrase, in the office which I have appointed unto you. We're going to see that repeated in a later verse in this revelation. And to me, that's, that's the ultimate contrary we need to prove when we are called as counselors. After being a counselor in three different bishoprics, I've realized I, I really prefer being a counselor to being the, the one in charge. In fact, when I was called as first counselor, I turned to the second counselor. And I said, man, I'm jealous. And he was like, why? You're, you're, you're second in command. And I'm like, I know that's the problem. Uh, at least you have a buffer before the responsibility lands on your shoulders. Me? Anytime the bishop's out of town. There's no one protecting me. At least, at least I'm your human shield. I mean, I, I, I've always loved being able to say the buck stops there, not here. I much prefer to stay in the seat that God has set out for me, to stand in the office he's appointed. And that seat isn't the hot seat. It's not, it's not the one in, in presiding authority. And I was always grateful for that, for that, that safe distance when the bishop was gone and I would sometimes use his office for, for interviews or ward council or things like that, I would always make a conscious decision never to sit in the bishop's chair. I mean, it only looks comfortable, okay? It, it isn't. And even just to give a, a visible uh, r reminder to those that were present, I'm not your bishop. I am simply his counselor. And so I am standing in the office that's been appointed to me. But also the other half, because we can't make that a cop-out. I can't take the easy way out and kind of wash my hands of it and say, well, I'm not the one in charge. So I'm just going to sit back, content to play second fiddle, and anytime the bishop or presiding authority gives me something to do, then of course I'll do it. No, that's not what the Lord is asking. He's asking me to be proactive, to be anxiously engaged, right? The power is in me. I'm an agent unto myself. We already saw that. Well, the phrase here in verse 3 is to be faithful in counsel. Give, them, give the presiding officer the best possible counsel that you can. Don't hold back or sit back thinking, well, it's, it's not my responsibility. Well, the final say might not be, but having some say in the matter definitely is. Speak your mind. Don't be a yes man or a yes woman. Don't hold back simply thinking, well, making the decision isn't my responsibility. It's not my calling. Well, counseling the one who's going to have to make the final decision is. So do it. Be faithful in counsel. Faithful to God 
and your, the revelation you receive from him, faithful to your own experience and your own perspective, give the presiding officer the best advice you possibly can. You're called to do so. But at the end of the day, when, you're, when you know your counsel has been heard, if that counsel isn't followed to the letter, because the, the presiding authority has been receiving counsel from other people as well, doing the best they can to be faithful in counsel right alongside you, then it's the, re, it's the responsibility of the presiding officer to bring all of those disparate views together. He's trying to triangulate things, to get the, the depth perception. You're one eye, the other counselor is the other eye, and, and the bishop or the stake president or the Relief Society or Sunday school president, in this case, the president of the high priesthood, is supposed to get the full view based on what everyone else is seeing. I hope this is making sense. To me, it's as, as a counselor, that's the contrary I'm trying to prove. To be as proactive, have as much, as much initiative as I can, to be faithful in counsel. But at the same time, to recognize I have an office that is different from the presiding officers, and so I need to stand in the office that I've been appointed. As with most contraries, we tend to err on one side or the other. And you either speak your mind and you're a little frustrated when it isn't agreed with by everyone in the council. Or you don't speak your mind because, hey, I'm not in charge. And so I'm just going to wait for the final decision and then move forward with whatever delegated responsibility I'm given. So wherever you happen to be, too hot or too cold, inch your way towards the Goldilocks zone. That, that's what being a good counselor is. And what will the result be? Verse 4, in doing these things, thou wilt do the greatest good unto thy fellow beings, and wilt promote the glory of him who is your Lord. Do you see both of the two great commandments there? Love God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, the vertical commandment? Well, there's giving, promoting the glory of God. And the horizontal, second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself? Well, you're doing that too, the greatest good unto your fellow beings. In a way, you might feel one step removed from the action. It's not your presidency. But in a reality, it is. And the best counsel you can give to that presiding officer, as it's all woven together into one unified view, and then you all move forward with it, since you've contributed your perspective to it. It's the beauty of a ward council, for example, where everyone, it, it's the principle of scattered revelation, where God has been giving pieces of the puzzle to everyone. And as they are faithful in counsel, giving their best perspective on things, then the presiding officer can, can see all of those things together, get a sense of what the picture on the puzzle box is supposed to be, and then begin delegating responsibility, which the members of the council are much more likely to accept since they have a stake in the decision-making. They were faithful in council first, contributing, and now they'll be ready to go out and, and, and function in the office to which they've been appointed on the delegation side of things. You get something of a repetition of that in verse 5. Wherefore, be faithful. That's the faithful in counsel side of things. And stand in the office which I have appointed unto you. That's the other side of things. It, to me, it reminds me of, oh, in the book of Exodus, when, when there's a, a battle taking place between the Israelites and the Amalekites, and Joshua is down in the valley uh, fighting to, to save Israel. And where's Moses? Well, he's up on the mountaintop along with two counselors, we might call them. Aaron and her. And the way God shows his hand in this particular miracle is that if Moses' hands are raised, then Israel prevails. And if his hands fall, then they don't. 
Well, battles tend to take a while, okay? And Moses was an old man. His hands would grow weary. But as soon as he dropped them, well, there goes the, the chances for the house of Israel. So what do Aaron and Hur do? They can't take Moses' place with their arms raised. If Aaron's up there on the mountaintop holding, lifting his hands, that doesn't do anything. That's not the office to which he has been called. He isn't Moses and, and was never meant to be. But what can he do? He can stand alongside Moses and bear him up. He can lift his hands. In fact, he can sustain him. It's a great word. Since as we sustain someone, we literally lift our hands. Are we lifting theirs? I hope that illustration helps cement in our minds exactly what, the, what Jesse Gauss, what Frederick G. Williams, and what any counselor in any presidency is being called upon to do. Stand in your office. Don't raise your hands, but be faithful in counsel. So raise their hands. Raise the hands of the presiding authority. In fact, it makes me think about the end of verse 5. Right after he's telling us, you've got to strike this balance, you've got to prove this contrary. He says to succor the weak, to lift up the hands which hang down, he sends Moses on the mountaintop, and to strengthen the feeble knees. Now, yes, that can refer to any member of the church who might, be, who might feel feeble or weak. That's part of the responsibilities of a counselor as well. In fact, it's part of the responsibilities of any disciple of Jesus Christ. And inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. That, that's part of the greatest good to your fellow beings. That's part of promoting the glory of your Lord. I mean, your responsibilities back in verse 3 seem to be more about oh, prayer and preaching. Well, here it's more about serving and succoring. Just because you're in a high position doesn't mean you should turn a blind eye to the lowest of those you are called to lead and love. There's a lot of feeble knees out there. But again, if we think about Moses on the mountaintop, sometimes it's the person you're called to counsel that gets the heavy hands, that start to hang down under the weight of responsibility that they are called upon to bear. So support them as best as you can. I have tried to do that to the wonderful bishops that I served under, trying to look for ways to lighten their load. There are certain things that both the president and the counselors can do. Well, in that case, counselors do all of them as much as you possibly can, because there's a lot of things that you can't do that only the presiding authority can. I remember being so touched by a statement from President James E. Faust right after he was called to the first presidency. In a talk about prayer, he asked all of us church members to pray for the prophet. He said, I sincerely hope that as we say our daily prayers, we remember to ask the Lord's blessings to continue to abide with our beloved leader, who in that time was President Gordon B. Hinckley. And then he said this, and I'll never forget the emotion with which he said it. This counselor to the prophet, this modern Frederick G. Williams, noticing the heavy hands of the prophet to whom he'd been called to serve as counselor, he said, no one fully knows, not even his counselors, how heavy his burdens are and how great his responsibility is. I was so grateful for that unique perspective from a counselor doing, I just got this sense of, I'm trying to do everything I can to help. In fact, I heard this story from President Faust later. It was hilarious that at one point he was, he was talking with his wife and his wife at some point said, honey, 
do you think you're doing enough to support President Hinckley? And President Fowler was like, ouch. Uh, I mean, I, I'm doing the best I can. I, I'm, I'm trying everything that's humanly possible. And, and Sister Faust was like, oh, I know, honey, but I just, I can't believe how hard President Hinckley works. How tirelessly he's traveling the globe, doing anything he can to build the Lord's kingdom. It just makes me wonder sometimes, are, are any of us doing enough to support him? Well, at one point, President, shortly thereafter, President Faust was talking with President Hinckley. And in a moment of just honesty and humility, he said, President, President Hinckley, am I doing enough to support you? And President Hinckley was so reassuring. Oh, President Faust, or probably called him James. Jimmy, for all I know. I don't know. But just, of course, you're, you're doing so much. I couldn't ask for anything more. And President Faust felt so reassured and comforted. And then he said, well, um... Do you think you could tell my wife that? <laughs> There's just something about offering as much support as you possibly can. Realizing that your, your president is so concerned about the feeble knees all around him that he doesn't take much care of his own knees. His hands are the ones now hanging down as they're reaching lower and lower to try to lift up everyone they're called to serve. Oh, we can all offer our best support. Our, our, our most faithful counsel, our most diligent service, we can all help in these regards. And as we do, verse 6, if thou art faithful unto the end, I wonder if that was some foreshadowing for Jesse Gauss, who didn't prove faithful to the end. But those who do, if thou art faithful unto the end, thou shalt have a crown of immortality and eternal life in the mansions which I have prepared in the house of my Father. That is his work and glory, after all, to bring to pass that immortality and eternal life, to prepare the many mansions in the kingdom of his Father. That is the third time that faithfulness was called for. I don't know if there's a better adjective to describe the kind of counselor that every president needs. The Lord then ends this revelation in verse 7 with, Behold and lo, these are the words of Alpha and Omega, even Jesus Christ. Amen. From start to finish, I'm there. I'm the ultimate key holder. That's how John the Revelator describes Jesus in the book of Revelation, as he who holds the key of David, that can open and no one shut, and can shut and no one open. He's Alpha and Omega. He's... He will always be there, beginning to end of this entire process. Like I said about Elder Maxwell's passing, or, or the, the departure and excommunication of Jesse Gauss. The caravan moves on. The kingdom outlives any of its servants, except for Jesus Christ. To me, there's actually something beautifully fitting there. That because it outlives any of our mortal administrations, who's the only one that really deserves the credit for seeing it through? From start to finish, well, it's start to finish himself. It's Alpha and Omega. It's Jesus Christ. He has given us prophets and apostles. He's given us presidencies of the high priesthood. And where much is given, much is required. Will we accept their words as if from God's own mouth? Will we see their, their instructions as scripture? You who are given callings to counsel, much was given well, much is required, and what is required of you, your faithfulness, your best possible advice. It really is amazing to see what, how the Lord rules his kingdom. 
And so much of it occurs as we counsel in our councils, church, family, you name it. Now, section 82, Joseph has traveled back to Jackson County, Missouri. We saw that back in section 78, I believe, where they were told that you need to counsel, speaking of councils, to sit in council with the saints in Missouri. Remember, they're creating this united firm that's going to be responsible for the mercantile and the literary aspects of the church. Well, section 82 is, is kind of the second half of that. In fact, 78 and 82 are two halves of the whole. There's a lot of overlap and repetition between the two sections. 78, go down to Zion and start counseling. Well, 82, we're here in Zion and now we're counseling together. And specifically, they're counseling about that united firm. How do we run the temporal as well as the spiritual aspects of the church? How do we feed people, both temporally, Bishop Storehouse, and spiritually, publish the scriptures? One other detail about this is there had been some friction. That's often the case with councils, sadly. We are uh, natural men and women, right? And we don't always see eye to eye. That's too much on the, I'm giving my best counsel, and not enough of the, I'm going to stand in the office that I've been appointed. Well, there had been some friction between Sidney Rigdon and Edward Partridge. They didn't see eye to eye on everything. And so in, as part of this conference that they get together to sit in council together, those two air their differences, they sort through those issues, and they apologize, they reconcile, they forgive one another. And it's actually in recognition of that forgiveness that this beautiful revelation begins. Section 82, verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, my servants, that inasmuch as you have forgiven one another your trespasses, even so I, the Lord, forgive you. Now notice the inasmuch, that's the key. Inasmuch, to the degree that you forgive one another, that's the degree to which I will forgive you. Remember Jesus taught that at the Sermon on the Mount, that be careful how you judge one another, because whatever measure you meet to others, it will be measured unto you again. We talked about that in section 64. Of you it is required to forgive all men. Why? Because if you're not forgiving of others, then God can't be forgiving of you. You've burned down the bridge that both of you needed to cross over. Well, inasmuch as you have forgiven one another. Edward Partridge, Sidney Rigdon, you've reconciled horizontally. Well, guess what? You can be reconciled vertically as well. You have been kind about the motes in one another's eyes. I'll be kind about the beams I recognize in each of you. And I would add, I think the order is key. You forgave each other first. So secondly, I can now forgive you. That was Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount also. If you're going to come and, and lay a, a gift on the altar, but if there's anything amiss between you and your brother, then go reconcile horizontally first. Forgive one another. And then come and offer this gift on the altar. We actually see that in 1 Nephi 7, where there's been a lot of friction on the trip among Nephi and his brothers. I mean, if you're related to Laman and Lemuel, yes, there's going to be friction. And they go back to Jerusalem and find uh, Ishmael and his family, and they bring them back, and there's all this conflict on the way. But by the end of chapter 7, Laman and Lemuel repent. They seek Nephi's forgiveness, which he says he frankly gave to them. I frankly forgave them. But as soon as he does, what does he ask them to do? Seek forgiveness from God. Now that we're reconciled horizontally, seek the vertical reconciliation that can only come from Christ, which they do, and which they receive, inasmuch as you've forgiven one another, I will forgive you. That, by the way, is another great example of where much is given, much is required. I offer forgiveness. 
I offer mercy, I offer grace. And what is required of you to do the same for one another. Because I have been given much in those spiritual areas, I too must give. I must be forgiving. Verse 2, nevertheless, so we're, uh -oh, we're pulling the pendulum back a bit. Mercy in one, so I bet justice is going to come in two, sure enough. Nevertheless, there are those among you who have sinned, sinned exceedingly. Yea, even all of you have sinned. But verily I say unto you, beware from henceforth and refrain from sin, lest sore judgments fall upon your heads. As usual, he's really trying to strike this balance here. Despite exceeding sin, there's sin in scope or scale. I'll be forgiving. And you're, you're all guilty. So that's sin not confined to a single group. Sin is exceeding, and sin is universal. But God's love is universal too. So I'll be merciful. I'll be forgiving. But beware. Be more careful. Or still worse things will come. That's all in context of this all-important phrase in verse 3. For of him unto whom much is given, much is required. And he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation. No wonder there's more sore judgments that might fall upon our heads if we're not more careful. Specifically, what has, have they been given? Another chance. Your sins have been exceeding, every one of you. But I'm merciful. I have forgiven. But because I have given you much by way of mercy, what is required of you? Yes, be merciful to others, verse 1. But be more careful about justice staring you in the face. That's verse 2. We'll see more of that in a moment. Now, verse 4. Ye call upon my name for revelations. After all, they're sitting in council to try to get the Lord's direction on things. You call upon my name for revelations, and I give them unto you. But what did he just say about giving? Where much is given, much is required. So what have I given in verse 4? I've given revelation. I've given instruction. I've given guidance. And what is now required of you? To follow it. That's what he gets at. Inasmuch as you keep not my sayings, which I give unto you, ye become transgressors, and justice and judgment are the penalty which is affixed unto my law. So what are you doing with my mercy? Verse 2. Much of it is given. So what's required? Please be more careful about sin. What is given in 4? Revelation. Guidance. So what is required of you? To follow it. Because if you don't, you have transgressed. You've gone against the gift that I've been given. Why ask for direction in the first place if you're not going to follow it? I mean, I guess we could ask, at what point does ask and ye shall receive turn into don't cast your pearls before swine. Because tragically, based on verse 4, sometimes the pearls that the, the swine are ignoring are pearls that the pigs asked for to begin with. Please help me know what I should do. And there he is, crowning us with commandments, not a few. But are we following the direction that he gives us? You see, this stuff counts. Uh, it's, it's game time. It's not preseason anymore. Justice and judgment, penalties affixed to law, they're staring you in the face. As Elder Maxwell, speaking of him, used to say, this is a real war with real casualties. And you get a sense of that war in verse 5. Therefore, what I say unto one, I say unto all, and here's that universal command, watch. That was the beware of verse 2, the be aware, the watch of verse 5. And watch for what? 
Watch, for the adversary spreadeth his dominions, and darkness reigneth. This is what you're up against. In fact, think about that darkness in verse 5 compared to the greater light mentioned in verse 3. I mean, this is Zion, okay? They're there in Missouri, and there's conflict and friction with the neighbors already. Yes, this was once the Garden of Eden. Well, there's still a lot of snakes around, okay? So you've got to be careful with the neighbors. By the way, they have less light than you. In this area, the adversary is trying to spread his dominions because he's scared to death of us establishing this well, not just the stronghold in Kirtland, there was opposition there too, but the center stake of Zion right here in Missouri. We're going to see that clearly in this revelation, that there, there is a border war going on here between good and evil, between Zion and Babylon. In this case, between light and darkness. Among the Missourians, much darkness reigns. But don't hold them to your standard. You don't come marching in here just proclaiming, hey, this is the territory God gave us, so you're free to either join us or leave. Oh no, you're bringing, you're bringing a lot of this opposition upon yourselves. And part of it is because you're holding them accountable to a standard that they're not accountable to. It's you, saints, that are sinning against greater light. And so it's you that will receive a greater condemnation. Be careful how you're judging your neighbors. It's the justice and judgment that's staring you in your face that I'm more concerned about. Now, that doesn't leave the Missourians off the hook. Verse 6, The anger of God kindleth against the inhabitants of the earth, and none doeth good, for all have gone out of the way. I mean, you're all in the same sinking ship, right? Back in verse 2, it was all of you members of the church, all of you that are here sitting in council. You have all sinned. And in a way, that makes you no different from the rest of the Missourians all around you. Well, different at least in one way. You're supposed to know better. You've been given greater light. The rest of these inhabitants of the earth, none of whom are doing good, all of whom have gone out of the way. Well, is it because they're, they're living in darkness? Well, don't just go out and condemn them for their darkness. Learn to share with them your light. That's something required of you too, since much has been given. Now, verse 7 comes back to this idea of, I've given you much forgiveness, and what is now required of you is, to, is much carefulness on your part. Because look what happens. Verse 7, powerful verse. Now, verily I say unto you, I, the Lord, will not lay any sin to your charge. That's the good news. Go your ways and sin no more. There's the command. But unto that soul who sinneth, here comes the warning, shall the former sins return, saith the Lord your God. Now that warning ought to rivet our attention. Wait a minute, if I fall, if I slip back into former sins, then the former sins return? Whoa, what, what do you mean by this? There seems to be a sense here that, well, what's on your ledger? Is God keeping track of our sins? I mean, you said that, I, I, that you'd remember them no more. Well, yeah, but I also said that I would remember them no more if you repented. And what's repentance? You confess and forsake them. Well, here you are returning to them. That's not forsaking sin. I mean, you want a graphic example. This is the dog returning to its vomit or the pig to its wallowing in the mire. I mean, you, yeah, if you were to visualize that, ew, that's a disgusting mental image. And yet that's the one the Lord is using. Going back to those things. You've gotten rid of them. The, the sin-sick soul vomited out those sins. And now that you're feeling better, 
eh, it wasn't that bad. Really, was it? We go back and start... I don't even want to finish the, the analogy. We are returning to our former sins. Well, it seems fitting then that our former sins return to us. They're back on the ledger. Now, we have to be really careful about this passage because as he's already admitted in two different contexts here, we're all sinners. And I would venture to assume that we're all repeat offenders. We don't, we're not just the creative type, like, no, I've already sinned in that way. Let me try something new. Well, yeah, sadly that describes us as well. But in this case, I, I, why do I fall back into the same stupid mistakes that I've already made and already repented of? I mean, it's interesting to see how much of sin in our day has taken the form of addiction. And when we've known from the beginning that Satan is trying to enslave us, they're, called, they're not called the chains of hell for nothing. And so to feel trapped by those and the challenge of addiction is that it is a repetitive sin. My wife is an addiction recovery and, and substance abuse counselor. And what breaks her heart more than anything is having someone new come that isn't actually new, that she remembers from, from a previous visit that had made such incredible progress and re-entered society only to fall back into their old ways and have to return to a treatment facility. That's heartbreaking. Recidivism is the technical term. And you see it in the criminal justice system, in prisons that have... We punish a lot of people. I just don't know how many people we actually help redeem because so many, we just turn them loose and they fall back into to prior behaviors and end up back right where they started. It's a tragedy. And it's tragic spiritually too. Those former sins are returning. They're back on my record. I didn't forsake them after all. Well, th please be careful here. This is a, this is a verse on, just, on justice. Remember, justice and judgment are the penalty which is affixed to my law. This is a very just verse. Please do not read it uncoupled from all of the mercy verses that we're aware of. We have to prove these contraries. So if you're already beating yourself up over former sin, be careful how, how hard you read this verse to yourself. If you've been too merciful on yourself and you're like, ah, oh, I'll sin again because I know I'll repent again and I know God will forgive me again. It's quite the cycle. I've been through it quite a few times. Ooh, then let verse 7 sink into your soul. So whichever side of the spectrum you are, move in the right direction. It is true what it says at the end of Mosiah 26, that as often as my people repent, even of the same sin, as often as they repent, I will forgive them. There's no limit to that. But, but couple it with this 82 verse 7. If you return to your former sins, then your former sins return to you. Now, how can both of those be true? This is really what we need to grapple with. Because it seems kind of an all or nothing kind of a, a, an approach. You either have all of those old sins, they're back on your permanent record, or all those sins are gone and the Lord remembers them no more. It reminds me of a game of musical chairs. It's like the music stops and you're either on the chair or you're not. You either get to go on to the next round or you're out of the game. And it was it, right in that moment. And was I on a chair when the, when the music stopped or not? Now, can you imagine uh, on, on this kind of scale... What happens if you, quote, die on a bad day? 
unquote. Uh, you, you live in a constant flux between sin and repentance. I mean, welcome to our mortal probation, right? All of you have sinned. There are none do, that doeth good. All have gone out of the way. But you're all trying, so beware and be careful and try again. Much is given, much is required. Ah, even that phrase is justice and mercy fused together. Well, let's go back to our question. What happens if I die on a bad day? If I was on a, as often as my people repent, then all those sins are forgiven. That's a good day to die. Versus, to that soul who sinneth shall the former sins return. Well, I don't want to die on that day. I mean, I remember being in a car accident when I was in, in college. And, and where the vehicle started to fishtail and eventually spun around and then went off the road and flipped over. I mean, honestly, I thought it was over. It was... I'd never been in one of those kind of life and death moments. And it went slow-mo, just like they say it would. And I remember I'm turning over and honestly thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to die today. Hmm. That wasn't on my to-do list. Uh, I wasn't scared. It was just super slow. I remember thinking, okay, well, if today's the day, oh, I hope my mom doesn't worry about me. I hope she knows I'm okay. I mean, yeah, I'm dead, but, but I'm fine with it. It's not a big deal. And I hope she's comforted. Well, the next thing I know, I'm hanging upside down from my seatbelt and I'm like feeling around going, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm still alive. And, and all of us in the car are still alive. And as we crawl out the back uh, shattered win window, kind of checking cuts and, bru and bumps and bruises and things, but, but nothing major, even though the accident was major. I remember turning to my, my roommate, who we were on a triple date. There were six of us in this big car. Uh, and I turned to my roommate and I said, dude, we were this close from being mission companions. And he's like, oh, well, I'm like, too soon. Sorry. Yeah, well, you know the doctrine. Um, th this, this, it would have been fine. And, I, and somehow, I guess my native cheery temperament, that's how I dealt with, with my near-death experience. Like, eh, today would have been a good day to die. Well, I hate to admit that there have been other days since then that I wouldn't have been joking with a, a roommate about becoming mission companions because I was more concerned about prison than paradise on those days. I had things to repent of. And I had justice and judgment staring me in the face as penalty affixed to broken law. And that's my big fear. What if I would have died on a day like that? Now, how do I reconcile those two? Because I've even heard people kind of put out this what-if uh, possibility of what if there's two people uh, and they're both, it's a bad day for both of them. And they're in a car accident and one lives and the other dies. Now, it was a bad day, but the survivor repents and changes. Well, where's the justice in that? That he had time to change. The, the music kept playing for him and he got to move. He was, he was chairless for a time. But since the music kept playing, he got to keep going around the circle. And by the time it did end for him, he was on a chair and all was well. Well, wouldn't the other guy have found a chair if the music had kept playing for him too? Dying on a bad day, that's, that's a rough thing to consider. So how does it work with this doctrine, especially when it's this all or nothing or this seemingly all or nothing approach? Well, I think there's something hidden in that verse from Mosiah 26. As often as my people repent. We, we so often talk about the as often, the, the limitless mercy of God, no matter how many times you've sinned, even, even rep repetitive sin. 
maybe it's more important to focus on the next phrase. As often as my people repent. Ah, maybe that's the difference. Not are we sinners or not, since we're all sinners. It's are we God's people or not. Remember that great definition of a saint? A saint is a sinner who keeps on trying. That's the question. Would you have kept on trying? Is that the way you live your life? Elder Maxwell talked about the problem of what he called ritual prodigalism. I sometimes call it pre-planned prodigalism. Like, oh, I'll go wander, I'll stray, I'll go off to that far country and waste my inheritance in riotous living. Yeah, and I know I'll just come back because, man, my father is so kind to returning prodigals. In fact, it's been a while since I had a robe and a ring and a fatted calf, and he gives them to me every time. So, I mean, I've got a collection of rings. What do you think I'm selling off to be able to, to pay for my next round off in Babylon? No, no, no. That is pre-planned prodigalism. The repetitive nature is ritual prodigalism. And that's something that God can, can have no mercy on until the, the ritual side leaves, until the pre-planned part is gotten over. And you treat each repentance as, as the, it's going to be different. Remember, we saw that in a previous revelation. I forgive you this once. Now, if we are his people, if we're sinners who keep on trying, if our repentance, albeit repetitive, can be sincere every time. We're not just saying, I'm sorry. It actually hit me that sorry and sorrow, it's the same root. And so just saying, I'm sorry, that's just lip service. But to experience true godly sorrow, even if we thought we had been sorrowful enough the previous time, I'm serious. I really do want to change. I'm sorry. When my wife sees these people return and there's just a brokenness in them and wondering, is there any hope for me when all past experience notwithstanding, I keep messing up? Well, but you're here. You're trying. You haven't given up on yourself or on God or on the process. Let's start again. You're a sinner, yes, but you're one who keeps on trying, and that makes you a saint. You can still refer to yourself as one of God's people. And so as often as my people repent, I will forgive them. I mentioned all of those former things, putting back on your permanent record. Well, picture a bank account with all of your, your assets and your liabilities. All of your credits, that's a good day, and all of your debits, that's a bad day. And what if you die when you're in the hole? What if you die on a bad day? financially. Well, the key here is, is it a single account or is it a joint account? Because if you are married to the Lord who is rich in mercy, as he says, now as long as you are not presuming upon his grace, the way Paul says it is that you despise the riches of his mercy. It's, I'll just put it on his tab. It's fine. He always bails me out. Again, that's the prodigal son returning and saying, hey, dad, robes and rings for everybody. No, we, we can't go down that path. But think, if you are truly married to Christ, then what happens with your debits? His credits always offset them. So here's the, the key to this, this analogy. Justice and judgment and mercy and forgiveness and all of it is less about the, the state of your bank account and more about the state of your marriage. It's less a matter of have I sinned again 
and more a matter of am I still sealed to the Savior? It's not the as often as, it's the my people. In other words, this isn't a story of personal finance. It's a story of personal relationships. So if you're struggling, don't call your accountant. Call your marriage therapist. Okay, you understand what I'm trying to get at in terms of, of repentance and forgiveness here? I mean, let's make it more uh, specifically marital, okay? My wife and I have now been married for 22 years. Uh, it's been incredible, but there has, have, have been times of friction. There have been times that I've said something that I regret, or I haven't been as kind or as patient as I've needed to be. Imagine if I, I storm off to work on a day like that. We had a rough morning, and just imagine I died on a bad day for my marriage. Does that moment offset or contradict or does it, does it ruin my marriage? Does it mean that every good day no longer counts for anything? Is my ceiling intact or have I ruined it because the music stopped and I wasn't on a chair? The answer to that question is no. That doesn't define my marriage. That was, that was a blip on the radar because guess what? I've had days like that, but I didn't die on the bad day. And what did I do as soon as I got home? Probably even sooner. <laughs> I repented. I apologized. I didn't just say sorry. I, I felt godly sorrow and I sought my wife's forgiveness. And what defined and defines our marriage, since it can't be perfect every day, is forgiveness. It's mercy, it's reconciliation, it's grace. And if I hadn't died that day, I would have come home and, and all would have been well. Because that's just what we do. That's, that's our relationship. Spiritually speaking, it's still a joint account. And as long as my marriage holds, then, then the ledgers will balance out. I think the danger the Lord is warning us about in section 82, verse 7, is not just committing another sin, but giving up on your relationship with Jesus Christ. There seems to be, in my mind at least, a difference between breaking a commandment and breaking a covenant. There's a lot of overlap between commandment and covenant. I, I get that. But if a commandment is kind of the to-do list of things I'm supposed to be living, but the covenant is the relationship side of things. Uh, for commandments, there's the bank account. For covenant, there's the, the marriage. For commandment, yes, there's some accounting that needs to be reconciled. But for, but for covenant, am I still sealed to the Savior? If I break that relationship, I'm no longer covered by the riches of his mercy. Then yes, it's no longer a joint account. It's a separate and single one. And mine, the debits far outweigh the credits. All those former debits have returned, and I am in the red. Whereas if I had simply stayed sealed to the Savior, I could have been in the red in a different way, cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's those old sins that the Lord remembers no more. I, I testify of the reality of both of these I, I sense the truth in both extremes of justice and mercy. I am aware that our former sins return to us as we go back as a dog to its vomit. 
But if we return as a dog to its master, tail between its legs, sorry for what we've done and redone, the Lord is forgiving, as often as we, his people, need him to be. I, for one, am eternally grateful for that as I continue to try to grow up in God and become more like him. Now, verse 8, let me begin a new thought. Again, I say unto you, I give unto you a new commandment, that you may understand my will concerning you. And that's all a commandment is, the Lord's will concerning us. Remember he said that earlier? I'm going to stop calling these commandments because sometimes you don't really do well with that word. Well, here's, it's expedient in me. It's wisdom in me. Here's a good suggestion, and I am omniscient. Well, here's my will concerning you. Verse 9, I can even soften it more. Or in other words, I give unto you directions how you may act before me, that it may turn to you for your salvation. That's another great way to phrase it. From commandments to my will to mm, directions. This is the instruction book. This is the recipe. This is, how it, this is how you do it. If you want to act in such a way that it turns to your salvation, believe me, as the Savior, I know the best approach. Here's, and here's what it is. Verse 10, I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say. But when you do not what I say, you have no promise. Now, if we sometimes misquote verse 3 and soften it, or sugarcoat it, and say, well, where much is given, much is expected. No, it's required. Well, sometimes we do disservice to verse 10 as well. And we say, oh, well, the Lord's bound when we do what he says? Awesome. Then I'm just going to be strictly obedient and bind God. Well, a couple of problems with that. Number one, our obedience never seems to be quite as strict as it ought to be. I mean, this is the same being who says, I cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Yeah, that's a high bar to set. But the other problem here is we sometimes want to rephrase this, that the Lord is bound to do what we say, as opposed to what he said. I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say. This goes back to the difference between commandment and covenant. We don't accept God's commandments and then give him some commandments in return. Uh, I, I remember doing that the wrong way when I was in high school. At the beginning of every, of every track meet, when I stood there in the, in the starting blocks, staring down the, the, the track that I had to, to run the hurdles on, I just dreaded the running side of things and thought, Heavenly Father, I keep the word of wisdom. You said that I'd run and not be weary and walk and not faint. Well, bring it on. And well, the run and not weary, I got really weary, <laughs> okay? It was hard. Uh, but, but demanding that God bless us in a certain way that we're calling the shots and giving him commandments in return for our obedience to the commandments he's given us. No, leave that off. Think instead of the covenant side of things. And I, the Lord, am bound to you in covenant when you do what I say. And I am bound by that covenant relationship, to treat you as a covenant partner, to bless you in the ways that I see fit, to guide you according to my will, not according to yours. I think it's wise to remain fairly vague on the ways that God will, will bless us. That we can simply trust that, yes, if I pay my tithing, for example, God will open the windows of heaven and pour me out a blessing. But he gets to decide what kind of blessing it will be. It may not be as monetary as I want it at, on occasion. 
Sometimes it's even less directly related. Sometimes, again, tithing, we think, oh, I pay my tithing and God blesses me financially. Well, yes or no, it's his will. He's bound to bless us. He promises us that. That's part of his covenant relationship. But again, don't give him commandments on how to do it. And even on the, the less directly connected of if I, if I study my scriptures every day or if I live the gospel as, as perfectly as I can, then, then God has to bless me in, in specific ways that I'm requiring of him. Now this, that's a really twisted version of much given, much required. Yeah, he gives us much and I require much of him. No. The Lord is bound in the covenant relationship. Don't demand that he respond to your petitions in specific ways. Even Jesus, not my will, but thine be done. And he knew God's will would be done because Jesus was fulfilling that will. I mean, nobody complied with that phrase better than Christ. When ye do what I say, that describes Jesus from start to finish. But was God therefore bound to do what Jesus asked and pled for him to do in the Garden of Gethsemane? Take this cup from me. I'm doing what you're saying. You're bound to, to do what I ask. No, that is not the case. You are bound by your divine will. You're omniscient and omnipotent. You're all-knowing. You're all-powerful. You're all-loving will. And I trust you. I mean, you want to be bound? Then borrow from what Abigail said to David, that thou art bound up in the bundle of life with my Lord. That's the kind of binding I want to be a part of. I'm not standing apart from God, binding him, enslaving him to my will. Since I kept yours, you got to keep mine. No, it's I'm bound in the bundle of life together with him. A covenant relationship. And I, and I know, I don't just trust, I know that God will fulfill his part of the relationship as I fulfill my part. And I'll leave the specific particulars to him. He deserves that level of trust. He's earned it. Now, specifically to this united firm, go on to verse 11. Therefore, verily I say unto you, that it is expedient... Again, it's wise. Here's a direction. Here's a commandment. It's expedient for my servants. And then here's the members of the United Firm. Edward Partridge and Newell K. Whitney. There's our two bishops. A. Sidney Gilbert. There's the bishop's agent in Missouri. Sidney Rigdon, a counselor to Joseph Smith. And my servant, Joseph Smith, president of the high priesthood. John Whitmer, who's a church historian and scribe. Oliver Cowdery. He's served in those callings as well. W.W. W. Phelps. He's in charge of the printing establishment in Zion. Martin Harris, it's always nice to see him back. And it always seems to be involved in financial things. It's like, Martin, I'm so grateful. You always seem to have things to consecrate. We need you once again. Don't cover your property. Just give it to the Lord. And Martin always seems to come through. Well, these members of the United Firm, speaking of being bound, think a little bit less about God being bound in 10. And let's talk about you being bound in 11. All these members to be bound together by a bond and covenant. There's the connection we're looking for. That cannot be broken by transgression. Except judgment shall immediately follow in your several stewardships. Each one of you, as I went through the list, you kind of got a sense of what each person's stewardship would be. And they're coming together to be able to provide for the saints temporally and spiritually. To run the kingdom. 
again, there's not a high council yet. There's not a quorum of the 12 apostles yet. There's not even a first presidency yet. We've just gotten to a point where we finally have a presidency of the high priesthood. But this united firm coming together and coming together with a bond and covenant that can't be broken. We saw that phrase back in 78. Remember 78 and 82 go hand in hand. In section 78, it was prepare and organize yourselves by a bond or everlasting covenant that cannot be broken. Well, we're getting the same idea here. What are they covenanting to do? Verse 12, to manage the affairs of the poor and all things pertaining to the bishopric, both in the land of Zion, Missouri, and in the land of Kirtland, back in Ohio. Because both of those places have a role to play. Verse 13, for I have consecrated the land of Kirtland in mine own due time for the benefit of the saints of the Most High and for a stake to Zion. Remember, Kirtland was supposed to be a stronghold, so sell some farms to be able to consecrate, but hold on to other farms so that people here have, have means whereby they can live. It's all for the benefit of the saints. And I love that end. And for a stake to Zion. Now, we usually refer to them as a stake of Zion. And that makes sense. We're all, all these stakes scattered around the world. We're all parts of the, we're all stakes of Zion. But I love how specific this one is. Well, that Kirtland is going to be a stake to Zion. Because this is really where we get the, the tent analogy that Isaiah gives us. That Zion is supposed to be this massive tent that it extends out and brings everyone within its shelter. But there is a center pole. I mean, that's where it's all supposed to be centered. And what was Independence, Missouri called? The center place. That's where our, our tallest pole is going to be. That's where everyone is, is meant to gather. But to hold up the tent fabric, what do you need? You need long cords and strong stakes. And so these stakes aren't just of Zion, like, oh yeah, a little piece of Zion there, a little piece of Zion there. No, they're stakes to Zion. The focal point is still Independence, Missouri. The, the center place is still what needs to hold. But to hold it, we need all of these st strong stakes surrounding it. And then we get verse 14, which is a masterpiece. For Zion, this big tent itself, must increase. And then it describes ways that it, by which it's supposed to increase. In beauty, that seems to be its external aspect. In holiness, there's its internal aspect. Her borders must be enlarged. There's size and scope and her stakes must be strengthened. That's kind of its depth, its power. So you get this improvement, this increasing in all these dimensions. Yea, verily I say unto you, Zion must arise and put on her beautiful garments. Arise, it's like put that, that pole, that center pole up, lift it, put on her beautiful garments. There's the tent itself, the, the fabric extending in all directions. You get a sense of the tabernacle here. And we talked about those 24 elders uh, from, from the book of Revelation back in section 77. The 24,000 Levites that were there to officiate in the temple. Well, here's the tent of Zion. It's the tent of the, of the presence, the tabernacle of God. There in the center of everything. And we are responsible to, to erect it, to build it. So Zion, you must arise Put on these beautiful garments. I mean, the, the, even if you were to look at the construction of the tabernacle and see what it looked like, it was meant to be a place of beauty with every color of the rainbow in it somewhere. Beautiful garments. And how do we get to that level of beauty? We increase. 
we enlarge, we strengthen. In fact, when we think of beautiful garments, yes, I, I picture the tabernacle cloth, but I also think of the marriage feast. Back to the book of Revelation, the, this marriage feast of, of the coming of Christ, it describes the, the church. You know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Well, as Christ gives himself for the church, the bridegroom is coming to accept the bride. And it was given unto her to be arrayed in beautiful raiment, pure and white. That's how Revelation describes it. Well, here, through the atonement of Christ, it is given unto us to be arrayed in beautiful garments. If we increase in holiness through him. You see, one of the things I absolutely love about verse 14 is how it connects back to verse 5. Because if verse 5 is the adversary spreading his dominions, and verse 14 is Zion enlarging her borders, do you get a sense of what's taking place? This is a border war. This is like Axis and Allies from World War II, where, where you have these superpowers rising and then nations choosing to, to join one side or the other. Until ultimately there is no middle ground, no more neutral nations. You have to pick a side. How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you're not with me, you're against me. I mean, there's so much of this duality that you see throughout Scripture. Because it really is darkness versus light. It really is the Lord versus the adversary. It is Zion versus Babylon. And both sides want to claim everything. Anytime a new technology is invented, both God and the devil say, Dibs, I, I can use that. Every time we have a choice placed before us, there are opposite poles, tugs, inviting and enticing us to, I mean, even our consecration, we give our time and our talents to one side or the other. I mean, this is an ongoing battle and the battle lines are constantly shifting. There's not an inch of ideological territory that is not fiercely contested. And if you've sensed an encroachment of Babylon into Zion territory, if it's harder and harder to just feel safe within your own home because the adversary has ways of spreading his darkness even wirelessly. And on the other hand, if you are one of the Lord's servants who's there on the front lines trying to enlarge her borders, these counter-offensives into enemy territory, that's what a mission is. It's what service is. It's what reaching out to someone who's struggling in their faith is. Oh, I love trying to extend the borders of Zion to establish a foothold in enemy territory and enlarge the borders of the kingdom of God. You understand why our stakes need to be so strong? Every one of them? Because if one of them can't quite hold and grip the ground and, and, and it gets ripped up somehow, because of the, the onslaught of the adversary, well, the tent has collapsed a little, bit, a little bit in that corner of the vineyard. When I was on my mission, I was in Puerto Rico. I began in 1994. Now, in 1993, one year before I got there, Elder El Tom Perry at the Quorum of the Twelve had gone to Puerto Rico on assignment from the First Presidency to dissolve one of the stakes. There had been four stakes at the time, and it just... The church wasn't going the way that it was supposed to as far as strength. Numbers were increasing. Borders were enlarging, but stakes weren't being strengthened. 
It was more breadth than depth. And people were joining the church, but they weren't staying active. And so Elder Perry came. Well, he toured the island. He interviewed all kinds of leaders. And I heard this story from the regional representative who was beside him in the room when, when President, Elder Perry called President Hinckley and return and report. And he said, I'm here in Puerto Rico. I'm, I was sent to dissolve one of the stakes. Well, after touring the island and interviewing people, I really feel like we need to dissolve all four. Just kind of start the island all over again. No more stakes, just one big mission with a bunch of districts. No more stake presidents, just all under the direction of the mission president and called district presidents. And no more wards and bishops, just branches with branch presidents. We're starting over. Uh, and that's, I know, a huge change. I just, I'm calling to ask if I can do that. And President Hinckley said, you're an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do whatever you feel like you need to. And so overnight, basically, Puerto Rico went from four stakes to zero. And even a year later, when I got there, it was, the saints were still kind of reeling uh, after this kind of ecclesiastical slap in the face. Well, it was amazing to watch the tent to see the flaps flutter a little bit when those stakes were removed and the borders were, were diminished somewhat. But what happened in the meantime? Oh, it woke up the saints in Puerto Rico to the point where there was no more a matter of something to be taken for granted. That it wasn't just breadth that they were after, it was spiritual depth. And so they worried a little bit less about numerical beauty and focus a little bit more on spiritual holiness. It may take us a while before our borders can be enlarged back to where they were. But in the meantime, we can strengthen our fellow saints so that when a stake returns, it will be a strong one. And it was amazing as the years went by, there were my whole two years there, no stakes. But since then, to watch stake after stake after stake return to that island, I mean, a temple is now being built just outside San Juan, which is a thrill to me. The presence of temples is evidence of strong stakes. And in fact, temples, I actually just read an article where there's this, there was, somebody was trying to wrap their head around, well, wait a minute, why are temples being announced and being built? I mean, they're multiplying. I mean, I, I thought President Hinckley was the great temple builder in our dispensation. And I swear President Nelson is going to break his record. I mean, at, at, at his rate. But the, but the irony that this, this author and analyst posed was the growth of the LDS church has been, has been slowing dramatically. I mean, COVID had a huge part to play in that. And the increasing secularization of society has a huge part to play with that. This is not, the, the slow growth of the church is not an LDS problem. In fact, uh, it's not a problem compared to what other churches are going through. I mean, particularly in the various denominations of Protestantism, they speak of a hemorrhaging of members. Our growth has become a, a, a lot more flat, but it is not a, this precipitous de decline that other denominations are, are struggling with. I mean, I felt that often when I was at Divinity School, and there would be a certain amount of hand-wringing among, among the, the scholars of these Protestant denominations of what's happening to our membership. And I, I haven't seen that in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But as far as enlarging our borders, that's been a, a much slower pace of late, which then begs the question, if our numbers aren't growing exponentially, then why are the number of temples growing so fast? 
And I think verse 14 gives us a hint. In some ways, it's the ebb and flow of life or natural growth cycles. You see it in nature that sometimes there is a spreading of branches and other times there is a deepening of roots. And what I see about, about missionary work, extending the borders of Zion and the land of the living, uh, there are times of great growth horizontally. There are other times where it's, it's a time to hunker down and to strengthen the stakes of Zion because they're going to need to be strong enough to hold up the tent as it's being extended. In fact, back to the pandemic, if it was a time when the borders of Zion couldn't be enlarged very much, how about our stakes? Were they strengthened? You individually? Do you feel like you grew spiritually during the pandemic? I, I get a lot of comments from so many of you wonderful viewers that say, my, my scripture study has in, in, improved so much thanks to so many of these things that are available online. That you've felt a, an increase in beauty and in holiness and a strengthening of yourself spiritually. Even when your borders have been somewhat confined with shelter in place or social distancing or whatever it might be. Oh, I hope we took advantage of the time that we had to strengthen home base. We're starting to ramp back up our missionary force. We're starting to restock the missionary training centers. Oh, soon enough, the borders will once again be enlarged, but I hope that our stakes are strong enough to handle it. All of us should be increasing in beauty and in holiness. It's our chance to rise and put on the Lord's beautiful garments, the robes of righteousness. Well, keep going. Verse 15, therefore I give unto you this commandment, that ye bind yourselves by this covenant, and it shall be done according to the laws of the Lord. There's that word bind again, and it's in conjunction with covenant. It's, to me, it's ironic that anytime you think of section 82, most people are like, oh yeah, that's the one about the Lord is bound. Well, yeah, there is a verse that mentions the Lord being bound, but there's two verses that speak of us being bound. And let's focus on that side. Trust me, the Lord is not the weak link in the, in the covenant chain. Of the two partners, he's the steady one, the, the, the reliable one, the one that can always be counted on. He will do what he has said. His character commands it. The rest of us, I hope we are binding ourselves with a bond and covenant that cannot be broken. Verse 16, behold, here is wisdom also in me for your good. Another great word for commandment. It's expedient. It's wise. It's just instruction. It's direction. It's the best way to live. Trust me. I've figured it out. Verse 17, and you are to be equal or in other words, so he's about to redefine equality in an important way. You are to be equal, or in other words, you are to have equal claims on the properties. For the benefit of managing the concerns of your stewardships, every man according to his wants and his needs, inasmuch as his wants are just. So when he's speaking of equality here, again, it's not equivalence we're after. The Lord's equality is equal opportunity. It's equal access to resources. Again, we're nowhere near that in, in the world today. I mean, in, in certain political circles, there's such a concern about redistribution of wealth and, and an equalization across the society. That, that's not what the Lord is after through the law of consecration. 
that is a counterfeit consecration. Oh, it's, it's close to the real thing. The best counterfeits always are. But the kind of equality the Lord is after is equal opportunity and equal access, equal claims on the properties for the benefit of managing their stewardships. Remember, there's supposed to be a bishop's storehouse. There's supposed to be a surplus that is there so that as I am engaging in the work of my own stewardship, whatever I've been given, again, this is another chance of another example of where much is given, much is required. I've been given a stewardship and much is required of me in that stewardship. I'm supposed to balance the, the ambition of capitalism with the altruism of communalism. I want to get ahead. It's private ownership. I can do this. And so I'm gonna, I want to invest in myself, in my own stewardship. If there's a way I can, I can expand or grow, expand my borders, deepen my, you know, strengthen my stakes, increase in beauty and holiness, it's, there is a, an ambition for Christ, as we heard from General Conference a few years ago. And so go to the bishop and ask for access to the properties for the benefit of managing your stewardship. I need a little extra capital so that I can add some acreage to my farm or so that I can expand my blacksmith shop. But, it's, but the result isn't about me. It's so that I can then contribute more for the benefit of others. We'll see that in just a moment. But do we all have equal claim on that property? That's, to me, the downfall of where economics have gone in, in our day, where the rich keep getting richer and the poor get keep getting poorer. And it's not about equalizing everything and, and making everyone the exact same. Because as we see, wants and needs are different. Now, he said at the end of 17, make sure your wants are just. Reminds me of that amazing scene in It's a Wonderful Life, when everyone gets the run on the bank and everybody's coming to, the, to George Bailey and I, I want all my money back. And he says, no, 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 please. We're all bound, to, speaking of being bound, we're bound together in the bundle of life. And your money is in, in her home and her savings is in his business. And we, we can't just pull up stakes and, and every man for himself. How much do you legitimately need? What are your just wants and needs? And, and we will provide them. And when they finally realize, I love that scene. They finally realize we are all in this together. What's the minimum I can, get, I can survive on until things get a little bit better for us all? That's all I'll ask for. My, my needs, my wants are just. But then that other part that we, we're not getting right in our society today, does everyone have equal claim on what's there? The Lord isn't playing favorites here. All are alike unto him. And what is all this for? I love verse 18. And all this for the benefit of the church of the living God, that every man may improve upon his talent, that every man may gain other talents, yea, even an hundredfold, to be cast into the Lord's storehouse to become the common property of the whole church. That's about as good a description of consecration as you could find in Scripture. I'll summarize there in verse 18. What's it all for? It's for the benefit of the church. And it's to benefit the members of the church and all of God's children around the world. That's why we need a surplus. So it's not just meeting our needs. It can begin meeting the needs of everyone else. And I'm so grateful the church is finally in a place to be able to do that as far as humanitarian aid is concerned and not just church welfare. I mean, the development of talents, 
the improvement of the talents you already have and then the gaining and developing of additional talents. This goes back to section 46 about seeking the best gifts, but always remembering for what they were given. And what was that? That all may be edified, that all may be taught, that all may be benefited. It's for the, the collective whole. It becomes the common property of the whole church. You see why we can afford to covet then the best gifts? It's the more used would I be prayer. When the steward with the five talents doubles it and has ten, well, what's it for? To put in his pockets? No. The Lord, uh, the, the master can now put that steward in charge of greater responsibilities, but those extra talents can now go back into the pool so that yet other stewards, maybe the one with two that doubled it to four, could use a little bit more than just the two because he really has a vision of ways he can be more helpful himself. Well, then contribute. He has equal claim to that surplus property as well. Like I said, the ambition of capitalism coupled with the altruism of communitarianism. This is a beautiful economic proving of contraries. As he says in verse 19, every man seeking the interest of his neighbor, there's the horizontal second great commandment, and doing all things with an eye single to the glory of God. There's the vertical, the first great commandment. Verse 20, this order I have appointed to be an everlasting order unto you and unto your successors inasmuch as you sin not. Remember back in 78 when we talked about this everlasting perpetual order that didn't last very long. And we talked about the difference between uh, eternal principles versus changing programs. We're getting a repetition of that here. The united firm in its as presently constituted didn't, didn't last very long. But the need to consecrate, that's ongoing, that's everlasting. The need to do things for the interest of one's neighbor and for the glory of God, that's an everlasting order too. At least it will be if we don't sin. Now verse 21, the soul that does sin, he that sins against this covenant and hardeneth his heart against it shall be dealt with according to the laws of my church and shall be delivered over to the buffetings of Satan until the day of redemption. That was hinted at in section 78 also. We talked about Jonah and the buffetings of the stormy sea as he was delivered over to those buffetings at his own request. I mean, after all, he wanted no part of it. That's the sense you get at the beginning of 21. Not only did he sin, but he sinned against the covenant. It wasn't just a sin against commandment. It was a sin against covenant. He didn't just make a mistake. He hardened his heart against it. This goes back to what we saw in verse 7 about the former sins returning. It wasn't just the bank account. It was the relationship. And these people don't just want to, to go against good accounting. They want to end the marriage. Verse 22, the Lord then says something rather confusing. Now verily I say unto you, and this is wisdom, Make unto yourselves friends with the mammon of unrighteousness, and they will not destroy you. Now what? Make friends with the mammon of un... What? For mammon? We don't like that word. No man can serve two masters. It's either God or mammon. This is Babylon versus Zion. And now the Lord's crying, oh, get, get friendly with them. Is there a Joseph Smith translation here? Oh, no, no. This is a Joseph Smith revelation. This is exactly what the Lord meant to say. Well, what, what did you mean by that then? Now, he's trying to get us to think of the parable of the unjust steward. I mean, this whole thing's about stewardships, right? 
Well, the unjust steward is one of the strangest parables Jesus ever teaches because he seems to be commending dishonesty. I mean, this is the one where the steward has been dishonest, so he knows he's about to be fired. So he goes to all these debtor, these debtors, people who owe his master money. And he goes and he like plea bargains with them. And he's like, hey, you owe him 100? Uh, let's call it good at 80. You, how much do you owe? Well, let's just knock it in half. And, and by the time it's all said and done, the master's going to get a lot less than what he's legitimately owed. And yet, what does the master say to, about this unjust steward that he ends up firing? Oh, kudos to you. Good work there. It's like, what? How could you commend behavior like that? Well, this is one of those examples where you have to be really specific about what exactly are you commending? Elder Talmadge helps us with this as he explains this parable in Jesus the Christ. He said, take a lesson from even the dishonest and the evil. If they are so prudent as to provide for the only future they think of, how much more should you, who believe in an eternal future, provide therefore? If you have not learned wisdom and prudence in the use of unrighteous mammon, how can you be trusted with the more enduring riches? I used to do this with my seminary students to try to illustrate this point. I'd ask them to list like Disney villains, and then I'd say, okay, pick one and tell me some redeeming feature about their approach to life. And they're like, what? A redeeming feature of a villain? Okay, well, they were resourceful. Mm -hmm. Ah, really diligent. Yeah, they set their eyes on something and just went for it all the way. I'm like, yeah. Now, their goals were, were off. Don't follow their bad examples as far as destination is concerned. But as far as many of the attributes that, that were pushing them to achieve it, those are worth imitating. In the case here, you can learn a few things from your Babylonian brothers. I mean, you want to talk about the ambition side of capitalism? I mean, boy, are these people working hard to get ahead. And that part of it's good. They're trying to get ahead for themselves. That, that, that part's not so good. We need to be seeking the benefit of our neighbor. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be just as hardworking as those around us. In some ways, it reminds me of what St. Augustine said about, about plundering the riches of Egypt. Remember when, when the Israelites were able to take all the, the gold and jewelry and, and things from their Egyptian masters, and when they got out into the wilderness, it was meant to be used to, to make the tabernacle implements, the Ark of the Covenant, the Table of Showbread, the incense altar, and so forth. Now, unfortunately, they used it to, to make a golden calf first. But there's the choice that's placed before us. What are you going to do with what you gain from Egypt? In this case, what particular lessons are you going to learn from Babylon? Their gold is good if it's given to God. The moment you start spending it on yourself, there's a golden calf that you're worshiping. But learn the lessons that the Egyptians can teach. It's amazing to see how many general authorities over the years have been trained in the business of the world and proven incredibly successful in the world's business, but then translated, sanctified what they've learned, melted down Egyptian gold, and built an Ark of the Covenant instead. That is what they're, they're being asked to do. There may even be a level there in verse 22 about learn to live with your neighbors if you don't, you're the ones sinning against the greater light. And therefore, 
worthy of greater condemnation. Don't be mean-spirited. Don't be oppositional. Become friends. Even if they're mammon, even if they're unrighteous, we don't want them to destroy you. You're going to have to live together. It is a border war. But in the meantime, you might have to learn to live with those on the other side of the border. Now, the revelation then ends in 23 and 24. Leave judgment alone with me. It is mine. I will repay. Peace be with you. My blessings continue with you. For even yet the kingdom is yours and shall be forever if you fall not from your steadfastness. Even so, amen. Maybe that's another nod to Jesse Gauss, who did fall from his steadfastness. But a reminder to leave it in God's hands. He'll take care of the, the judgment of the mammon of unrighteousness. You just do your best to coexist and not succumb to their unrighteousness. I've got this. May my peace be with you. My blessings continue with you. The kingdom's yours. You're here. You're in Zion. Let's let Zion in her beauty rise. Let's arise and put on our beautiful garments. We owe it to each other with whom we are bound in covenant. And we owe it to the world that we're trying to help. Now that idea of, of owing it to someone, you get a sense of that in section 83, a very brief little revelation that has to do with providing for a specific portion of the poor, a particular group whose knees are often feeble and hands are often hanging down because those who are typically in the best position to lift and strengthen them are no longer present. He's talking about widows and orphans primarily. You see, as Joseph was traveling down to Missouri to be able to sit in council about the, the United Firm, he spent some time in one outlying community in which he knew several of the saints, two of whom were sisters who had become widows, raising children without the help of their husbands. Even at the time, Missouri law, I mean, it was interesting. It was, it, was a, it was a hard time to be a woman. That describes most of human history, unfortunately. We're just beginning to get better, and there's still lots of room for improvement, believe me. But and unfortunately, a woman did not have uh, property rights. She didn't even own herself, really. As soon as she was married, she and all of her belongings belonged to her husband. And the, the danger was, what happens if a husband dies? Does... Is, who does the widow belong to? It's a horrible way to even say that. Uh, but what about their belongings? Do they belong to the widow? Or with the husband gone, if it was all in his name, is, does she still have claim to those things? And Missouri law tried to work with those situations in a certain direction, but it wasn't exactly what the Lord had in mind. I mean, the mammon of unrighteousness never really is. But they, I mean, it was some steps in the right direction, but they still had a long way to go. Well, Joseph knows these sisters. And he's wondering, what, what happens to them? And not just in terms of Missouri law, but divine law with consecration and, and stewardship. If, if the husband, for example, had, had the blacksmith stewardship or a stewardship of a farm or whatever, we, we want equality and equal access to properties and benefits and so on. Well, does the same hold true for their, their widow? What about for their children? How does that all work? And so he asks the Lord. And section 83 comes as the answer. Verse 1, Verily thus saith the Lord, in addition to the laws of the church concerning women and children. I mean, the Lord had already given them some directions when it came to women and children, but not specifically this case. 
those who belong to the church who have lost their husbands or fathers. It's like the Lord is saying, beyond what I've already said about women and children in general, a group you need to think about. Well, there's a subgroup within the umbrella of women and children, which are widows or orphans, and you need to take special care of them. This is the, the least of these, my brethren, okay? So you need to notice the often overlooked. You need to include the marginalized. In fact, you need to go out of your way to find the out of the way. The Lord always did. And he expects his saints to do likewise. In fact, where much is given, much is required. I've given you the security and safety of a family. I require you to pay special attention and give special care for those without that same blessing. In fact, I'm, I'm haunted by this verse. This is in Exodus 19, right before the Ten Commandments come. And the Lord's giving the Israelites all kinds of other laws, but he points out to them, you better take special care of widows and orphans. And then he, he kind of turns it. I call this enforced empathy. See, there's one thing about empathy. It's a gift that God wants all of us to develop within ourselves. We need to care about what other people are going through and mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. We need to feel like we're, I mean, Paul says it, towards those in bonds, feel like you are in the bonds with them. We actually saw that earlier in the Doctrine and Covenants. In all his affliction, be thou afflicted in all of his afflictions, and then you can pray for his and your deliverance. Remember that? Amazing concept. God wants us to develop this, this empathy. Well, the principle of enforced empathy, it's brutal. Uh, in, in very strong language, and it took that kind of language to get a bunch of telestial freed slaves to become at least terrestrial uh, Israelites on the way to, to celestial disciples of Christ. But he says this to them. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child, if thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry. And then this, brace yourself. And my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. Whoa, did you get that? If you cannot choose to be empathetic, I and mean, we heard this from President Benson, God will have a humble people. If you don't choose to be humble, he, you will be compelled to be humble. Well, God will have an empathetic people too. And you can choose to be empathetic, or you will be compelled to be empathetic. If you don't choose to feel what they feel, then you'll feel what they feel on their own. If you turn a blind eye, or, or neglect, or afflict a widow or an orphan in any way, then I'll make sure your wives and children know exactly what that feels like. Because I'll take you so they become a widow, so they become an orphan. You wouldn't feel for them? Well, your wives and children will. Ouch. I don't know if God can get any more bold at how serious he is that we take seriously other people's trials and tribulations, their sufferings and sorrows, and especially for the least of these, my brethren. If their hands are hanging down, then reach your hands down far enough to bear them up. That's part of the law of the church concerning those who have lost their husbands or fathers. And then a, a broader principle, verse 2. Women have claim on their husbands for their maintenance until their husbands are taken. 
And if they are not found transgressors, they shall have fellowship in the church. Now, flip side, verse 3, if they are not faithful, they shall not have fellowship in the church. Yet, they may remain upon their inheritances according to the laws of the land. So this is trying to answer the specific questions that Joseph and the others had. As far as temporal needs were concerned, as far as inheritances in Zion and stewardships and so forth. I mean, we saw it earlier in section 42 and elsewhere, where it's, it's still private ownership. You have consecrated all, and you gave it all to the Lord, but you did receive a stewardship back, and, and that belongs to you. Now, if you were to leave the church, you don't get back what you consecrated. That, that's, that, that's why you need titles and deeds and the law of the land and, and give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and, and the, the mammon of unrighteousness. I mean, we're living in a community. We have to do things legally. That's a good thing. That's not, I'm not complaining about that. But the point is, if they leave, then what they were given as far as stewardship was private property too. And if they leave the church, that still belongs to them. Well, that's what two and three are getting at. If the wife or children, well, are they going to be faithful or unfaithful? If their husband's gone, are they going to leave the church? If so, they may not want your fellowship anymore. They've kind of disfellowshipped themselves, but they can still hold on to their inheritance. It, it still belongs to them. So there's the specific answer for those specific cases. But more generally is what we saw at the beginning of two. Women have claim on their husbands for their maintenance. Verse 4, same thing for children. All children have claim upon their parents for their maintenance until they are of age. Now, the word maintenance is kind of a... I mean, we don't like that word, especially in terms of relationships. Like, oh, that person is high maintenance. That's never said as a compliment. Well, maybe we don't like the word maintenance when it comes to what I owe my spouse or my children. We often use that word, though, in terms of what I owe my car. Have regular maintenance. And what's regular maintenance for? To keep that car in running order. And I do like that as far as maintaining relationships are concerned. Back to our analogy of the bank account and credits and debits. I think often in, in, in a good marriage or in a strong family particularly, we just think, well, we started with such a massive nest egg. I don't even have to check my accounts. They're always in, in, in the black. It's like I won the lottery on my wedding day and, man, this is, this is going to be a maintenance-free marriage. Well, I don't know if there's such a thing. And with the demands on our time, every one of those is a debit. Whether those are the demands of work or of life or even of church callings, the demands of children, of health concerns, you name it. There are constant debits being taken out of of that stockpile of, of love upon which the marriage or family relationship was built to begin with. And if we're not checking our accounts, if we're not budgeting, specifically if we're not maintaining things to the point of, I'm going to need to give more, more credits to my relationship. My wife deserves a deposit of my time. My children deserve frequent interest payments. Uh, I'm constantly giving them the time and attention that they need. That's not just a good thing to do. It's an expected thing. In fact, it's a required thing. They have claim. We owe them that. And where much has been given, namely a relationship that is meant to last eternally, then much is required. Hopefully, by the way, that is a debt that we desire to pay.
I am not the type of, of car owner that looks forward to giving my vehicles their, their well-deserved regular maintenance. Partly because I, I barely know the first thing about cars myself. I never feel more useless than when I see someone on the side of the road with their hood open because I realize I can do you no good. I mean, I can like shine the flashlight if it's night. I can maybe, I don't know, sweep out some, some leaves that got under the hood somehow. But as far as like all the stuff that goes out on in there, no clue. I have friends that have come to my rescue repeatedly. And I think they actually look forward to regular maintenance. They're like, ooh, I get to change my, my brake pads. I like being under the hood of my car or even, you know, down on the ground looking up underneath it. I don't even know what I'm looking at. And when maintaining our relationships becomes something that we love and look forward to, chances are we'll be doing it right. That's what we're aiming for. Well, verse 5 and 6 then, after that, after husbands and fathers and mothers, after, again, husbands to their wives, parents to their children, after we give the, the deserved maintenance, after that they have claim upon the church. Or in other words, upon the Lord's storehouse. I mean, we're talking temporal after all. If their parents have not wherewith to give them inheritances. There's a great pr principle of church welfare. It's the concentric circles. Uh, I am responsible for myself. I am an agent unto myself. And I should be doing all that I can to provide for my own needs. If I'm unable to do that, then what's the next concentric circle? I look outward and see my family surrounding me. Ideally, our parents, our siblings, or just extended family can come to the rescue and provide whatever we might need. Now, if, those, if the extended family doesn't have wherewith to give those children an inheritance, then the church steps in. In other words, the Lord's storehouse. That's when we go to the bishop and talk about fast offerings, trying to help me pay a bill that I just can't afford. And I've, yes, I've turned to my parents or I've asked my siblings and, and yes, that was hard for me. Sometimes it's actually easier to go to the bishop because it can be sort of nameless and, and we don't know who's contributing to us. And it's, oh, it's just the worst case scenario. It's just, oh, it's just the wealthy church. And of course they can, they can pay, pay my bills. Well, I think that's one of the reasons that it's go to your your family first, because there's a, a there's already a relationship there. There's kind of owning our own situation and having the humility to admit that we're in need. Remember what Elder Renlin taught about that great welfare principle he learned while serving in Africa? That the farther we are from the source of the assistance, the more entitled to it we feel. We feel entitled to government welfare because it's distant. We don't feel entitled to personal welfare. I don't feel justified in just going to a sibling and saying, hey, you make more than I do and we have more needs than you do, so fork it over, buddy. Come on, let's equalize things. Don't you consecrate? No, I have, I'm, I'm in no place to do that. But if I humble myself and don't feel any sense of entitlement and, and ask for assistance when it is needed, then it's a relationship that I'm working on, not a bank account, a relationship. We're bound in the bundle of life together. It's the marriage, not the money, okay? And same with church. If church feels further away, then, oh yeah, I'm justified. I'm, I'm entitled to, to fast offerings. But even in that case, can we make it close enough that we come humbly? We make sure that our wants are just, like we saw back in section 82. In fact, my brother once told me when he was in college at medical school, a bunch of starving uh, med students, 
that knew that someday things would be better. But it sure wasn't they weren't there yet. And my brother said that sometimes he'd learned, heard, this, heard this from his bishop, that if somebody came in expecting fast offerings with a certain sense of entitlement, and if it was mo- usually meant for the preservation of lifestyle instead of the preservation of life, the bishop wanted to teach them an important lesson. More than just paying a bill, he needed to help them understand what was going on here and have a change of heart that was, that was even more necessary than a change of finance. And so sometimes, you know, it'd be in the evening on a Sunday or something, this person would come in and kind of demand their entitled uh, fast offering funds. And if the chapel was empty, sometimes the bishop would take them into the chapel, turn on the lights and sit up in the bishop's seat and say, come sit next to me. You can be one of my counselors today. And then he would sit there and he would look out over this empty congregation and point to places in the pews and say, you know, over there, there's a young couple that is really struggling to make ends meet, but they're doing it somehow. And I'm amazed that they still contribute a a generous fast offering. I know there are certain things that they're saying no to, to be able to make that kind of contribution. Same when there's a couple over there, young family, have some little kids. I know their finances are really, really tight, but they're, they're trying to be as careful as they can with it so that they can still pay a full tithe and a generous fast offering. I'm, I mean, honestly, pause that story for a second. I remember as a, a counselor in a bishopric in a married student ward, we were all starving students. And there'd be days when I was counting tithing with the financial clerk and I would see the, the amount that fellow ward members were contributing, and I was amazed by their, not just their generosity, but by their self-sacrifice. Because I knew they were in the same situation that my, my, that my wife and I were in. It was humbling for me. It was inspiring to me. Well, evidently this bishop felt the same with so many of his ward members. But what he wanted to convey to this person to help them overcome their sense of entitlement was to put a face on the contributions that they were asking for. Because as he described these situations, then the question was, which of these families do you want me to take money from so you can perpetuate a lifestyle that is beyond your means? You understand what he was doing? I mean, that was bold of that bishop. But to humanize human resources, to personalize personal finance, to bring the distant provider up close and personal so that you no longer felt entitled to it and you really had to think, are my wants just? Have I asked my family? Because now my ward members are feeling a little more like family. And do I have the humility to ask them for assistance? Do I have the humility to rethink what I'm spending my money on before I ask someone else to give me the money they're not spending on themselves? Now, I I pray that this doesn't make anyone feel guilty that shouldn't be feeling guilty, okay? Uh, If if the truth hurts, just let it, okay? But if I don't don't mean to, to add a burden or a weight of guilt or shame to anyone that's already feeling sorrowful that they cannot provide for themselves or for their families. That, that is not my intent at all. I hope that you know that. But here, I, I, I'd want to correct it from the opposite extreme. That, that's my hope in, in that discussion and the hope of the Lord in these concentric circles of support. Okay? 
the revelation that ends with verse 6, the storehouse shall be kept by the consecrations of the church, and widows and orphans shall be provided for, as also the poor. Amen. And that's the beauty of that recognition that I was trying to convey in our discussion of verse 5. Verse 6 just says it plainly. This, these are the consecrations of the church. These are people offering their surplus, giving all that they have, and then receiving back just a portion often, whatever they simply need. These are people with ambition for Christ. These are people praying, more used would I be, and, and developing talents, and building upon existing talents, and, and growing things so that a surplus can be made the common property of the whole church. That's where these funds are coming from, and they're coming to you. I hope that you receive them in the same spirit with which they were given originally, through consecration. With that spirit, with overcoming that sense of entitlement, then you, you have claim for this kind of maintenance. You don't have to feel bad at all that you needed it, because it's going to help you get back on your feet. You're still part of this covenant relationship. You're bound in the bundle of life with everybody else, and as soon as you're able, I know you'll be contributing to, not to pay it back, but rather to pay it forward, because there will yet be widows and orphans yet to come. Yea, the poor are always with us. So will we always be with the Lord, so we have a desire to meet those needs, even unto the least of these, my brethren. It's relationship, after all. I want to close today, though, with one last wrinkle, one last thought to help expand our understanding of consecrating. And this comes from the beautiful story in the book of Acts when Peter and John are walking to the temple. And this lame man is, is lying there seeking an alms, probably trying to make eye contact with any would-be approacher to the house of God. And sure enough, he makes eye contact with Peter and, and John. But a little more eye contact than he had than he had planned on, because if you read the story and keep an eye on the eyes in the story, it says that Peter fastened his eyes upon him, and then when the words first came out of his mouth, he said to this layman, "Look upon us." So you see what's been happening with the eyes. The man must have been looking. He sees Peter and John. Peter and John fasten their eyes. I mean, it's like, ooh, that was a little more eye contact than I, than I bargained for. And so he looks away. I mean, usually it's the other person that looks away. I don't want to see the person in need. I don't want to acknowledge that. I don't want to see the, the humanity there because it'll tug on my heartstrings and then it'll tug on my purse strings and heaven forbid. Well, Peter looked and looked to the point that the lame man looked away maybe embarrassed by his own condition. And Peter had to call him back to, to, to visual contact. Look upon us. You see what he's saying? It's like, I want you to see that I'm seeing you. I need you to feel seen, noticed, understood, humanized. And by then, the layman must have felt a lot of hope. He, there's a connection here, human to human, eye to eye. He's going to contribute something. He's going to give me alms. And, that, and then comes these amazing words from Peter. Silver and gold have I none. Now that must have been devastating to the layman because that's what he'd been hoping for. No silver and gold? This is the time of consecration of the early church. The, the saints would come and lay all they had at the apostles' feet 
Well, that shows you just how much they redistributed to the point that they had nothing left for themselves. Sorry, I don't have anything to give. Well, then again, I do. Silver and gold have I none, but that which I have give I thee. And then Peter reached down and, and raised this lame man onto feet that were finally receiving strength. Oh, that far outweighs and surpasses what, what silver and gold might have done. I don't know what everyone needs when, when knees are feeble or hands are hanging down. I don't know what people need as they're seeking to increase in beauty and in holiness. I don't know all the forms that maintenance might take. But we have something to offer. All of us do. And so if it's silver and gold, then consecrate it. If silver and gold have you none, then give whatever you can. Your faith, your hope, your charity your testimony of him through whom all blessings come. That is something we can give to the world. And it's a gift they desperately need from us.